Welcome, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Detroit Investors Podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and real estate agent over here at the Renegade Realty Group. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? Well, first of all, it's this podcast you're listening to right now, but we're also a monthly meetup, right? We meet at various places. Right now, we're meeting at Shields in Southfield, and this group's about networking and doing deals. This ain't your grandma's Rhea, folks. No guru bullshit, no smell of stale coffee, been gay and or disappointment. You know exactly what I'm talking about. These little dark fucking dingy rooms. RDI is also this podcast, which I mentioned, where we continue the real estate conversation. If you're ever interested in attending any of our local events, go to renegadedetroit.com, meetup.com forward slash investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. I also want to let people know we're holding two meetings a month now, our main meeting, Renegade Detroit Investors, and a sub-meeting, which is an Ask Me Anything, where you can sit down with me or Jay or several of my other professional real estate investor agents and answer any questions in specific that you may have. What I love about our meeting is that it's a crazy, crazy meeting. It's like a the stock market in the 80s with everybody in the room screaming and yelling when you come to the main meeting. We've had a we're getting regularly between 150 and 60 people now, but we've had up to 187 in that room, and it loses its intimacy a little bit. I love the energy. Well, they ask me anything is the answer to that. We can bring back intimacy into Renegade Detroit Investors. If you're interested in any of the meetings, either go to the website or subscribe on meetup.com or facebook.com so you don't miss the events. All right, legal disclaimer, no way, shape, or form should anything that I say today be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decisions, you grow the fuck up and contact a lawyer or other licensed professionals and don't fucking sue me. Okay. Time for the Renegade Detroit Investor Show Quote of the Week, where I pick a quote that sets the tone for the podcast and hopefully your week. And I went with the secret to getting ahead is getting started by Mark Twain. And I picked this because I'm finally finishing the millionaire real estate investor today, right? So welcome this is part five, the last part of The Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller. Go ahead and grab your book and let us open to page 280. And we're going to go 280 till the end this time. Okay. So here we are. Also, um, I had some uh, constructive criticism on this and uh, Mark said I wasn't angry enough anymore. Fucking therapy is just ruining all my anger and anguish that I used to be able to just spit out on command here in vitriol on the podcast. So I'm going to do my best to keep it old school angry. Blame my therapist if it's not angry enough for you. But we're starting on page 280 and we're going to start with issue seven. Know your options for property disposition. And it's great if you're driving around a car listening to this, folks, but even better if you pull out your book. And do the read along. All right, here we go. Selling a property right is just as important as buying it right. And this goes beyond getting the highest price. Beyond staging the home for sale and marketing for buyers, what do millionaire real estate investors do that maximizes their returns from selling? The first thing they do is determine why they are selling. If it's to get immediate cash, then they are like any motivated seller. What they now get to decide is which property to sell and why. For example, they may have to choose between a property that is underperforming as an investment or one that command can command an unusually good price in the current market. 
Making this decision simply takes some thoughtful analysis that includes value and rent forecasting. Now, before you decide to actually sell a property, you should always review your options. There are other ways to get cash out of a property than selling it. It may meet all your needs to simply refinance the property and pull out your equity in the form of cash. Millionaire real estate investor Kathy Manchester took advantage of her strong equity position in the high-end vacation rental to use it as a $250,000 equity line of credit. She taps into this amazing cash resource regularly for short-term buy, improve, and sell investments, and then quickly puts the money back in her home. If you are looking for a way to maximize your price, you can use the lease option out strategy by finding a renter who wants to buy but cannot qualify for traditional lending. In the lease option contract, you can offer to apply some of the rent toward the purchase, agree on a higher-than-market rental rate, and negotiate the terms of the future sale at a precise point in time. With this approach, you should have a higher net operating income and usually a higher sales price. If the renter does not exercise the purchase option when the contract expires, you can do it again with the next renter. In a lease option or any sale, you can also opt to be the lender. Many non-qualifying buyers will pay a premium in both price and interest rate because you are their last or only source of financing. If they default, you get to do it again, probably at a higher price. And outside the book, make sure you check because when this book was written, this is before the CFPB, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and Dodd-Frank rules changed. I have sold many properties on land contracts for investors and also done it for myself, but there are some rules and guidelines and they are a lot harder to do if you're being careful than before, but can still be a great way to dispose of property. You could always look up my guest, Alan Daniels, go back on the podcast, uh, first podcast actually ever we did. He describes many of these things in t- detail. All right, back to the book. One of millionaire real estate investor Bob Guest's best deals was on a lease option. The woman who leased his home for a period of two years took amazing care of the property. She landscaped, painted, and improved. As with many lease option tenants, she considered herself the owner of the property, even though she had not exercised her option. At the end of the contract, she decided not to purchase and control the property and control the property reverted to Bob. In the end, he had two years of strong cash flow from a great tenant and a more valuable property that had been cared for lovingly. Your next option will be a tax-deferred 1031 exchange where you sell one property and buy another without incurring capital gains taxes. The fundamental requirement from the IRS is that you reinvest all your profits into the next property or properties within a specific timeline. We will talk later in the money section about the opportunities to do tax-deferred 1031 exchanges. Lastly, there's always the option of just selling the property. Millionaire investors consider this their last option since they are always seeking to maximize or minimize taxes paid on the net proceeds of a sale. They know that other options present better ways of preserving their capital and, when necessary, providing them with cash. Network. Together, everyone achieves more. You get that, team? And all business teamwork is one of the fundamental operating principles. For us, it's not just a feel-good, warm, fuzzy concept. It's about synergy and achieving the best results. That happens only when everyone is pulling from one another and, whenever possible, pulling together toward a common goal. Anything worth doing is more likely to succeed at the highest level when we synergize with others. 
This fact was made real for us by our millionaire real estate investors. They not only pointed out how others had helped them get started, but told us how important it was all along the way to have a group of trusted partners, mentors, supporters, and providers. I made this point earlier when I talked about your work network and lead generation network. What I want to say here is that your networks must grow as your investments and financial wealth grow. In fact, there will be a direct correlation between the two. Your network will reflect your net worth. Here are the four things you should do in your network as you grow your financial wealth. Number one, make associating with talent your number one priority. Number two, top grade for ever-increasing leverage. Number three, always work from written proposals and contracts. Number four, protect your reputation and operate with confidence. Issue eight, making or make associating with talent your number one priority. Your success will be determined in large part by those around you. As a result, you must proactively surround yourself with highly talented people. You are a social engineer of your own people matrix, the architect of your personal mastermind. Whether you are contracting for labor or employing it, talent is always the key. Off the book, what do you think this podcast is? What do you think Renegade Detroit Investors is? It's a lead generating, it's a network, it is a professional network, and it is a human network. And part of the way I've managed to get so much done in such a short period of time is I have an amazing work network, many of whom have been on the podcast too, and still many I'm trying to get on the podcast. So back to the book. What is talent? Talent is the intelligence, behavior, motivation, attitude, abilities, and experience of a person that make that person uniquely suited to do what he or she is doing. That person is a natural fit for the task or venture. Talent is not a measure of someone's worth. It is not a generalized label for a person. It is always related to the role a person will be playing. Talent is role and task specific. You want to find talented people who do what they do well and love doing it. More than that, you want talent that is fiduciary, not functionary. This means that the people you choose to you choose go beyond doing the job they were hired or assigned to do. They look out for your interests and protect it. I had an insurance agent who was doing an underwriting inspection of an investment company that was in the process of buying and that his company was going to insure for me. He called me back to tell me that he had completed his report and gotten the approval for my insurance. Then he told me that he was aware that his company had dealt with a number of foundation issues in that neighborhood recently and I might want to have it checked out. I did, and while there wasn't a problem with my property, I valued the extra effort by my fiduciary insurance agent in warning me about this. Always work with fiduciary talent. They will make a significant difference in your investment success over time. And out of the book, I get brokers trying to recruit me all the time to their brokerage. One of the reasons why I am at Keller Williams Somerset is there's some damn savages here selling tens of millions of dollars in real estate who have grown their business and people have bought brokerages and started mortgage companies and everything else. The reason why I picked this spot is I'm not interested in how much my fucking cap costs, right? I am surrounded by opportunity. I'm surrounded by people doing it at a much higher level than I am. And that is exactly the pool I want to, I want to swim in. I don't want to be a big shark in a small pool. I want to be a small shark in a big pool. Let me savage my fucking way up. Back to the book. 
Getting the right people in your work network doesn't happen by accident. It is a matter of intention and process. Finding talent and establishing a relationship with talent must be purposeful, so you must have a process. A simple process I recommend involves three steps, behavior, references, and track record. Determining people's natural behavior by asking behavior-based questions. Actually, if I'm hiring someone, I always use a behavioral assessment. The DISC test, for example, is a proven low-cost assessment that is widely available on the internet. It can be taken online with a report sent to you. An assessment will help you understand what people are good at and how they tend to react. Are they aggressive or not? Do they work well with people? Are they systematic in their approach? Do they follow rules and procedures? The key is to know what you're looking for and then decide if they measure up. Outside of the book, I do the same thing, although I don't use the DISC test. I use the Myers-Briggs and the uh, Jordan Peterson five aspects of personality. They both kind of do something similar, but one's more for like work and business and the other is more like you as a whole human being individual. But uh, it's good because it takes the bias out, right? It keeps you just from hiring people you just like, see if they actually fit a need and if they actually have uh, the personality traits that you're looking for to fill that particular position. Back to the book. You can sharpen your observational skills when you know what you are looking for. I recently needed some handyman work done on a property. Since I was in a hurry and my repairman was tied up, I called a guy who had a small handyman for hire ad in our neighborhood paper. I could tell after five sentences that he was not the man for the job. He had all the verbal energy and emotional expressiveness of a telemarketer. He was selling me from the get-go. I know that good detail workers on physical projects don't behave that way. I wanted a handyman, a craftsman, not a salesman pretending to be a craftsman. Remember that talent means the person's behavior fits the work to be done. Learn to read people's behavior. Find the person who's the right fit and you're less likely to end up having one. Next, always check references and do second and third level reference checks. In other words, I ask each of the providers references who else I might talk to who would give me insight into this person. For example, the reference may know a neighbor who also used the contractor in question. When I am two or three levels away from the direct reference, I usually get the whole picture, the person's weaknesses as well as their strengths. Finally, probe for the track record from that person and from independent sources. I have found that a person usually continues to operate in the way she, he or she has before with similar results. This is particularly true with important things such as attitude, work ethic, integrity, and quality of work. Get to know people. Make it your business. Success leaves clues, so look for their track record until you find the clues you're looking for. Determine who is talent, then make having those people close to you a high priority. Your net worth ultimately depends on the talent you bring into your life. Um, I just recently hired a bunch of new agents too. And one of the things I did was I placed many barriers to entry and I made them come in and shadow and do work on their own for quite some time uh, before I let them in. I also make them work their way up. I don't know if it's the right answer, but I'm choosing people with a great work ethic and a great attitude. And I'm just assuming I could teach them everything else. So that's what I'm doing. I also did the personality test. And so far, fingers crossed, so good, but we are in the beginning stage. So you get to see the rest of that as it plays out. Back to the book. 
Issue nine, top grade for ever increasing leverage. Ultimately, you can't do everything yourself, not if you want to get a lot done in your life. Thus, you need leverage, people who do things with and for you. Every business owner knows this, and all the investors we interviewed told us this. You can't do it all alone, and you'll do better if you don't try, particularly when it comes to investing in real estate. Get leverage. Find out which people get it done, which ones do what they say they'll do, and which ones are the best. Use them, contract with them, and hire them. Always be upgrading and never settle. Find the best, expect the best, and continue to work only with those who deliver the best. Those people will help make your real estate investments grow and enrich your life. We'll talk more about building your employed staff when we cover the seventh level in the Receive a Million section. For now, I encourage you to have the courage to top grade those who are close to you in your investing. Whether it's an advisor, a professional associate, or a service provider, do not be afraid to replace that person. You have the right, and if you care about how things turn out in your investing business, you have the obligation. Not in the book. I would also say your personal life, right? And then go one step further. Are you a fucking loser that people shouldn't be hanging out with? Good chance if you're listening to this, there's a percentage, I don't know, 20, 30%, something like that, who are listening to this, who have never done anything, not going to do anything, not going anywhere. Maybe you're that person and you just need to stop being a fucking loser, you know, turn your life around. Or maybe you're hanging out with a lot of losers. I found myself in life at one point going, what the fuck am I doing with all these losers around me? And I cut them all loose. Turns out I was acting like a loser too. Amazing how that works, right? Back to the book. How things turn out will be a function of who you bring in and, more important, who you keep in. I don't know why people are afraid to say no or no more, but they are. Some people stay in bad relationships and others put up with less than quality work and not getting what they paid for. Don't do that. Care about people and treat them fairly. However, when people don't do what they say they'll do or don't care about doing it well, move on to those who do care. Don't do it in a mean matter. In fact, always try and let these people know that you care for them as a person. Encourage them in their future work. Give them any personal support you can. And then start working with people who you believe will do a better job. To ensure you can always judge a person's work fairly, you follow this mantra in your professional relationships. Work first, friends second, and social maybe. It's an approach that works. If you're going to the top, if you want your real estate investments to go to the top, you must top grade the people on your team. The best athletic teams do this, college or professionals and their fans expect it. Recruit the best players and play the best players. Some good players may be left on the bench when the best ones take the field. That's what those coaches get paid to do, top grade and so do you. Issue 10, always work from written proposals and contracts. It is not an accident that most states require that all real estate transactions be done by written contract and only by written contract. No word of mouth, no inferred agreement, and not even a handshake is as enforceable when it comes into a real estate transaction. A written contract is binding, but only in its written terms are only if its written terms are enforceable. Real estate transactions have a long-standing and honored legal tradition regarding the written word. Besides, putting expectations in writing is fundamental to good business transactions. It makes things clear, it provides for consequences, and it can be interpreted and enforced by a third party. Paper has no memory lapses. Many people mistakenly believe that contracts simply create understanding and agreement. In fact, they do more. They also provide 
misunderstanding, and disagreement. Contracts outline not only what will happen and who will do what, but also what will happen if they don't. Good contracts provide for clear and straightforward consequences for default or breach and for a prescribed manner of dispute resolution, mediation, and arbitration. In a sense, good written contracts cover contingencies so that if worse comes to worse, all parties know in advance what will happen. For me, contracts are agreements for disagreement. When everyone is in agreement, no one looks at the contract. That's so true. It's only when there's a disagreement that it gets pulled out and gone over with a fine-tooth comb. As a rule, write this write agreements to resolve any possible disagreements as agreeably as possible. Do everything in writing. Get your bids in writing, get your proposals in writing, and work from written work orders and job descriptions. Even when it is not a purchase or sale of a property, any agreement you make with someone to do something for you or for you to do something for another person should be in writing. The costs, the fees, the specs, the plans, the options, the deadlines, the penalties, and the method for dispute resolution should all be there in writing and signed by all parties. It's pay me now or pay me later deal. You do the tough negotiating agreement reaching up front or pay with misunderstanding and contention later. I encourage you to be tough up front and get it in writing every time. I'll also say this. You can have the best worded contract in the world, and if you're still working with a piece of shit, it's not going to help you. So yes, work from a good, well-written you know, contract and agreements, but also make sure you're working with people who honor their agreements. I'm sure that makes sense. Back to the book. Issue 11, protect your reputation and operate with confidence. Your reputation is perhaps the most important asset you have. It is amazing how many people misunderstand this or get it reversed. They believe that reputation is important only when you are just beginning and when you clearly need the cooperation of others. Then when you are successful and financially independent, you can be arrogant and difficult to work with. They seem to believe that power comes from success and money. In my experience, those with the most success and money are usually the most cooperative and responsible. Of course, there are always exceptions. There are a few successful investors who are egocentric and difficult to work with. Perhaps they have created an erroneous stereotype for the financially wealthy. Your reputation for honesty, responsibility, and cooperation is foundational for your success. Since this reputation was earned over time, it is unlikely that it will change suddenly. The habits you built and demonstrate along the way will be sustained for the long haul. Begin with the end in mind. Treat your reputation as the precious asset it is. Develop it wisely and protect it fiercely. Follow the five rules of agreement from page 169 or engagement from page 169 and become a person others want to be around, support, and cooperate with. That reputation will bring you many communities and cost you many opportunities and cost you none. Not in the book. I've been on both sides of this. I trashed my reputation way back in the day by partnering with a evil son of a bitch. And um, I'm not quite 100% on the other side of that, but I've done a lot to uh, distance myself from that. And the people who, I'm admi- who I admire most in this business, in fact, I have a podcast coming up pretty quick with some three savages been around forever. I think you guys will really like um, who I re- who I really admire is just like that. They have sterling reputations and 
you can count on these people no matter what. Back to the book. Beyond that, your reputation may reduce the problems you have to deal with. First, people will be there for you when you need them. They will help you find solutions. Second, a good reputation may prevent problems from arising. I experienced this once with dramatic results. A problem had arisen as a result of a transaction. The buyer involved in the deal called me. He said he had been so upset with what had happened in his real estate purchase that he planned to sue me. When he talked with several attorneys about it, each one of them told him I always did the right thing. Turns out these attorneys were all in my network and knew me very well. As a result, the buyer decided to call me rather than sue me. We resolved the problem. He was very pleased with the way it was handled. When it was all over, what stuck for me was that other people's opinions of me, my reputation had prevented a lawsuit against me. The same can happen for you. Not in the book. Um, I've had this happen too, lots of times. Um, I am an extremely aggressive negotiator and I do things very professionally, but not everything I do is seen as a professional. And a lot of people will just give my seller what they're asking for if they've worked with me before because they know what's coming. And they also know if they lie, cheat, or steal on a deal, I go to the ends of the earth to fuck them, right? So my current, um, oh, I'm not going to get into that. It doesn't matter. Point being, I, I have a reputation of being a tough negotiator, professional tough negotiator. I'm not interested in being your fucking friend. You didn't hire me. My seller hired me, right? And I work for the seller or the buyer, most of the time the seller. And that saves me a lot of headache. Um, also, I don't do verbal offers and I don't negotiate without a written purchase and sale agreement and proof of funds. That keeps all the fucking riffraff away from me. You just want to text or email me numbers instead of actually presenting a deal and proving that they could actually perform on a deal. And I just don't bend on those things ever. And it makes my life so much easier in this business. I just don't have to deal with a lot of things that many other people have to deal with. It took me a while to establish it and I got to keep continuing to take care of it. Also, I've had to pay people to protect my reputation, even though I wasn't at fault or anything like that, but maybe it was something small that I could do to fix it. Um, one of them, they were accusing me of stealing and being a cheat, even though I obviously hadn't, I still paid that motherfucker and I still haven't forgot about it either. Protect my reputation. Back to the book. Oh, if you're going to shake me down like that, we better have done a deal too, by the way, and it better be a small amount or I'll out your fucking ass. Back to the book. In your role as an investor, your reputation will come from the way you make offers and do deals. Oh, and also be the last time we ever do a deal ever. Back to the book. Always do this with respect for other person, for the other person and an understanding of his or her needs. Once the most important Important is honest and straightforward communication. Since your acquisitions will have to meet both your criteria and your terms, you usually will be making below market offers and negotiating for everything you can. It will be important for the seller not to take any of this personally or have the sense you are trying to steal the property. Let the seller know and be sure your real estate agent lets them know that you're trying to help them get their property sold. You're an investor and you can only buy a property if it's a good investment. If the numbers don't work for the seller, that's okay. You're only looking to do win-win deals. It has to work for the seller and for you as an investor. 
You're looking for deals, not steals. You want to be the one who helps the seller solve his or her need to be out from under the property. The only way you can do this as an investor is to have the numbers work. You must get the right terms. You need to operate with confidence, knowing that you are providing solutions to other people's problems while staying true to your path as a real estate investor. When it works for both sides, it's a true win-win. When it doesn't, it's a move on, and that's okay too. Money. Give it a work ethic. Own a million is about building equity. Along with equity comes the opportunity for the cash flow it can generate. If we have stayed true to our criteria and meet our terms, our real estate investments should be achieving equity buildup and cash flow growth. But are they? That is the question you'll be asking continually, and those are the numbers you'll be tracking consistently. In the end, investing is a numbers game, a financial numbers game. You must hold your money accountable. You must count it and see if it's working for you. Is it, in fact, and by the numbers, building your net worth and your financial wealth? Issue 12, hold your money accountable to work for you. Throughout your investing career, you want to be sure that your money is healthy or wealthy. I call this the wise money rule. For me to be financially wealthy, my money must at least be healthy. After many years of business and investment experience, I've come to understand that there are four conditions of money, dead, safe, healthy, and wealthy. I began to understand this in my breakfast with Michael. Whenever I'd show him the money I had in the bank, he would say, that's just dead money, Gary. You can't become financially independent with dead money. He taught me that my money needed to be alive and working for me. How much additional money it was returning to me each year was crucially important. This was my return on investment, my ROI, and it was something I needed to measure and hold my invested money accountable for. Over the years, as I've become more financially educated, I came to define the four conditions in the following way. Number one, dead money that earns interest below inflation rate. Number two, safe money that earns interest at or just above inflation rate. Healthy money that earns interest that is well above the inflation rate. Wealthy money that earns interest that is above that for healthy money. To put this into more specific financial terms, in today's economic market, dead money would be earning 4% or less. Safe money would be earning 5 to 8%. Healthy money would be earning 9 to 12%. And wealthy money would be earning above 12%. Money earns wages just as people do. And for money to become wealthy, it must be paid high wages. The interest or return your money is earning tells you what it is getting paid as it works for you. Your money is gainfully employed or it isn't. If it isn't, it's unemployed, dead. If it's gainfully employed, it's now a matter of how much it's being paid for its work. From the beginning of your financial wealth building career, you want your money to be earning high wages, healthy or better yet, wealthy. Some people don't understand interest rates or return on investment. They know the, that higher is better, but they may not see how much better. Here's an easy way to understand this. Let's assume that you invested $100 every month for 30 years. For simplicity's sake, let's say you put it in an interest-bearing account and kept it there along with any interest you earned. The chart below shows what your total compounded value would be over those 30 years at various interest rates. So the first year at 4% is... $1,226 the f at five years, 
It's six thousand six hundred fifty-two dollars. Ten years, fourteen thousand seven hundred seventy-four dollars. Right, but if we go all the way to the right, and this charts on page figure eighteen on page two ninety-three, we see at twenty percent at one year we got one thousand three hundred and thirty-eight dollars. But year five, we're at ten thousand three hundred and forty-five dollars. And if we go to year ten, we're at thirty-eight thousand. $236. This is over double what the 4% did in 10 years. All right, back to the book. What a difference a few percentage points can make over time. At $100 a month for 30 years, we've invested $36,000 of our earned income. At 4% dead money, we've turned that into $69,636, which probably represents no gain against inflation. At 8% safe money, we've turned it into $150,030, and that feels a little better. With healthy money earning uh, 12%, we've grown that to $36,000 into nearly $353,000, almost 10 times what we put in. Our money has been getting good wages, but look what happens when our money earns wealthy wages. At 16%, it grows to over $887,000, wealthy money for sure. And at 20%, it goes through the roof with over $2 million. Keep track of what is happening with your money. Know what condition it's in and how well it's being paid. You need to keep track of your ROI for each of your properties and for your entire portfolio. You will see what annual return you are receiving on the money you have invested, your return on investment, and will track the annual return you are receiving on your equity. I call this second number your ROE, return on equity. You want to know both your ROI, return on investment, and your ROE, return on equity. The difference is that the ROI shows what you are earning annually on the money you initially invested, while ROE shows what you are earning annually on all the equity you have. In essence, your equity is your capital. You can take it out and invest it somewhere else through an equity loan or by refinancing the property. You could also do that by selling the property and exchanging it for another larger property. We'll talk about that more in a while. For now, be clear about equity. It's your money, it's your capital, and you want to know how hard it is working for you. Let's put some real-life real estate numbers to this idea of tracking ROI and ROE. We begin with our earlier example of investing in a single-family property that's worth $70,300 in 1983. This is from page 151. Remember, we acquired this property with a 20% discount and a 20% down payment of $11,248. That was our investment. In this example, we assumed a 5% annual appreciation in both market value and rent. Let's look at our investment performance using a 30-year loan at 7.43%. This is uh, from figure 19 on page 294. As we noted before, after 15 years, our $11,248 investment is worth $112,453, the accumulated equity. We have been achieving this equity buildup from the property's appreciation. It now has a market value of $146,302 and debt pay down. We have paid down the loan principal by $11,143. In addition, we are achieving an annual positive cash flow. To determine our ROI during the 15th year, we add up all the annual appreciation plus the annual principal paid plus the annual cash flow, which gives us the total annual return of $12,420. To calculate the ROI, 
We divide that total by the initial investment of $11,248 and get 110.4%. That means that during the 15-year period of our investment, we received an annual return of over 110% on our money. You can see in the chart that our annual ROI has grown from 37.7% in the first year to over 110% in the 15th year. You can see that in five more years, annual ROI will increase to 152%. This is just part of the picture. It isn't the whole picture about how hard your money is working for you. We know your initial investment is working very hard and getting paid very well, and we know that comes from the leverage power of real estate investing. In just this one property, you have gained a very strong equity position. As you can see from the chart, at the end of the 15th year, your accumulated equity stands at $112,453. That is your money too. It can and should be working for you. If you keep it where it's at, you can calculate how hard it is working, what it is getting paid. We call this your return on equity. And all we do is calculate is to divide your total annual return, 12420 by your equity, $112,453. Therefore, in the 15th year of this investment, your ROE is 11.9%. It is still healthy money, and that is a good thing. However, it's not working as hard for you as it once was. In fact, your ROE has been dropping since you made the investment. It was 16.7% in the first year and has been going down ever since. In the next few years, it'll probably drop to near 11%. What is happening, of, of course, is that you that as you increase your equity position in the investment, your rate of return on that equity decreases even though you continue to get appreciation, debt pay down, and cash flow. This phenomenon is what causes millionaire real estate investors to tap into their accrued equity, pull it out, and reinvest it for greater returns. They want their money, both earned and unearned, to work as hard as possible and get paid as much as it can. Think of yourself as like an agent for your money, right? Therefore, they continue to leverage that equity back into additional real estate investments, always buying it right with clear criteria and favorable terms. Our survey of our millionaires showed that they had just 40% equity position in their holdings. Most admitted they could have used cash flow to pay down more debt and increase their equity more rapidly over time, but they chose to keep building their financial wealth by putting that money back to work at a higher wage. You may be wise to do the same thing. Not only will it get you to own a million level, it can build up an unstoppable momentum that carries you to your own multi-millions level. In our example, let's now reinvest some of the equity and see what happens to the return on equity. Let's say that at the end of year 14, you refinance your debt and took out some of the equity. You had $104,286 in accumulated equity, which meant you had a 75% equity position. $104,286,000 divided by $139,321. Let's say you wanted to keep a 40% equity position. That would be $55,728 and therefore pulled out $48,558 through refinancing. You now owe $83,592. When we again calculate your return on equity for the 15th year, we will use 55728 as the denominator. With the added debt, your cash flow will be reduced, but you still will achieve a total annual return of $10,004. Your ROE on this property is now back up to 
If you are reinvest, if you also reinvested the forty-eight thousand five hundred fifty-eight dollars by acquiring one or two more properties using our standard model for investing that money, two would be working at a higher rate of return, sixteen percent or more. All this equity capital is now in the wealthy money condition, uh, not in a book. They didn't go buy a new car or new houses, right? Most people, when they refinance their money, they're they're spending on consumer things. What what he's talking about here is reinvesting it, meaning you don't get to spend it. You don't spend it, but you go back and you put it into other other investments, making more money. Back to the book. The return on investment or equity is similar if you use a 15-year loan. See the chart below. The ROI goes up over time and the ROE comes down. In this case, equity builds up faster and cash flow is reduced until the loan is paid off in 15 years. And then it goes up dramatically. As we said earlier, 30-year loans are safer and that you are more likely to get a positive cash flow. Also, you can always make additional payments, reducing the remaining balance on the loan and accelerating the payoff. 15-year loans act more like a forced savings program. You have to make the payments and therefore build equity more quickly. We observed that once they had a solid financial foundation, a good equity position, most of our millionaire real estate investors tend to favor shorter term loans. However, they continue to refinance, take out the equity, and add more income properties to their investment portfolios. Issue 13, minimize your tax exposure. In addition to making your money accountable by tracking your ROI and ROE, you want to minimize your tax exposure. This is a fundamental operating principle for all millionaire investors. They understand that taxes are an obligation but not a mandate. The government wants you to pay what you owe but gives you as many ways not to pay, at least not right away. It is really saying we will charge you less if you do these things. Looking at it another way, it is saying we will invest in you if you do what we want you to do. The government wants you to invest in real estate, hold those investments, or move into bigger ones. In a sense, the government is your co-investor. You are wise to take advantage of what is what it wants you to do, particularly since that is very advantageous to you as a real estate investor. The first thing you want to do is keep a detailed and comprehensive accounting of all your expenses, including the cost you incur in lead generation and property valuation. Almost everything you do during your acquisitions, inspections, finder's fees, real estate commissions, etc. represent costs you can use to offset your rental income. Most of those costs can be recaptured even years after they were incurred at the time when you have begun to achieve positive cash flow. You certainly need to keep track of all your operating expenses while you own the properties. In addition, you can make property repairs and improvements, especially those which add value to the investment and these expenses are also deductible against current or future income. Beyond all this, you can depreciate the property. In fact, the government requires you you to. It is well worth the expense to retain a great tax accountant who specializes in real estate investment. This person will be a key member of your work network. If he or she is not in your inner circle, your inner circle will help you find the best person to be your tax advisor. The first step has been to reduce the realized income on which you will pay the taxes. The second step is to reduce capital gains taxes, the amount you pay the government when you realize a profit or a gain on the sale of the property. While this profit is already is taxed at a rate below most income tax rates, you can delay paying it for a very long time. 
The two primary ways to do this are through IRAs and 1031 exchanges. You can use your individual retirement accounts or other tax-deferred savings plans to make and hold your real estate investments. As long as you don't take the money out of those accounts, you do not have to pay taxes even if you achieve large amounts of equity. You can, if you choose, take the money out later when you need the income. In the end, it's the tax-deferred 1031 exchange that gets massive use by millionaire real estate investors. This program and the IRS tax code allows you to sell and buy properties without having to declare capital gains or pay those taxes. It's a very straightforward procedure, but it takes some planning. First, you need to hire a 1031 qualified intermediary before you close on the sale of one of your properties. That person will act as your guide and escrow agent as you move through the sale of one property and the purchase of the next. After the sale of your relinquished property, you have 45 days to identify the replacement property and a total of 180 days to close on that second property. You want me to be looking for, you want to be looking for a replacement property before or during the marketing of the property you are selling. If you find a good opportunity, you can enter into a contract with a right to assign clause if your property does not sell or with a 1031 exchange clause in the purchase, in the purchase agreement if it does. Many people have the mistaken notion that you are exchanging your property with someone else. You take theirs and they take yours. In some cases, that can be done, but it is neither the purpose nor the requirement of a 1031 tax exchange. A 1031 exchange is designed for you to exchange one property in your portfolio, sell it, and replace it with another one that you wish to buy. It allows you to keep purchasing larger and more expensive properties without having to pay capital gains taxes on the ones you sell. This is a wonderful way to keep your money working for you. You, your primary asset. Don't underestimate what's possible and don't underestimate yourself. Invest in yourself. Stay plugged in. Seek out role models and mentors. Invest in personal development and education. Learn everything you can as soon as you can and never stop learning. Never stop asking questions. Stay into curiosity and out of the need to know it all now. Remember that you are your most important asset. That's not a selfish point of view. Shakespeare was reflecting this when he said, to thine own self be true. The degree to which you develop yourself and achieve your financial wealth building goals will be the degree to which you can leave a legacy. In the end, others will benefit from what you do for yourself. Issue 14, protect your time. Arguably the most valuable asset anyone has in his or her time. And so it pays to value it, protect it, and invest in it wisely. In the game of real estate investing at the own a million level, this becomes vital. From start to finish, the best use of your time will always be in generating leads, looking at real estate, and in doing deals. At the own a million stage, you'll have two new issues that would be wise to include on your shortlist. First, you want to watch your financial financials with an eye towards maximizing your returns, which was described in the money section. Second, you'll be holding others accountable to keep your time free. Your growing portfolio of rental properties will need someone's attention. It doesn't have to be your responsibility alone. Things break, toilets and furnaces cease to function on Fridays as often as they do on Mondays. Properties have to be shown. Tenants sometimes need to be reminded to pay rent. These problems and situations are the stuff of the war stories experienced investors tell. The stories that frighten many new investors away. 
What our investors made all too clear was that while owning real estate investment properties does make you a landlord, it doesn't mean you have to do the work of one. Therefore, don't act like one, hire one. I'm talking about property managers, and there are increasingly more options for investors, large and small, to contract with property management firms for single-family residential, multifamily, and commercial rentals. You simply account for it in your expenses. A typical fee is 10% of gross rents. And make sure the properties you acquire have enough gross rent to handle this cost and still generate positive cash flow. Outsource it, folks. In your portfolio, if your portfolio is large enough to support this, you may be able to let the economies of scale work in your favor by hiring a full-time property manager as an employee to manage all your properties. This is another area where investors have been quite creative. To protect their time, they not only budget for property management, independent contractors, or employees, but also cut deals with responsible tenants. In return for free or reduced rents, these model tenants often will manage small multifamily properties on the owner's behalf. Many single-family investors sidestep the issue through home warranties and lease agreements. For example, they purchase a warranty for their property that covers common repairs with a $50 deductible. They then write into the lease that all repairs are the tenant's responsibility along with the deductible. This can be marketed as a win for both the owner and the occupant. Since the renter can call for any repairs at any time for small out-of-pocket costs, while the owner doesn't have to look to book repairs around the tenant's schedule. There are innumerable, innumerable solutions to the problem of the day-to-day management of your holdings. As your wealth grows, make sure you're holding someone besides yourself accountable to tend to these daily tasks. Your time is too valuable and your life too short to collect late rents or fix leaky faucets. Issue 15, protect your assets. I encourage you to do entity and real estate planning as early in the game as you can. I waited too long and had to pay a high price when I finally got the right advice. I cost myself money and opportunities because I wasn't thinking big enough soon enough. I thought I didn't need it in the beginning and it seemed like an unnecessary expense. I was wrong. If you fail, you need it. And if you succeed, you need it. And if you succeed big and don't have it, not only will it be expensive, but you may have made mistakes you can't undo. My advice is this, do it right and do it right away. Very early in your investment career, you should meet with a qualified lawyer and estate planner with experience in real estate. Your network will be a good source of people to connect, to contact and interview. Once you find the right one or two people, ask all your questions, answer theirs, and make decisions. First, you want to make sure that you and your assets are protected from any liabilities that may arise from the ownership of your position as a landlord. This is the right time to be sure you have proper insurance in place. Second, you want to be sure that your estate is handled properly and that you have minimized the tax consequences from your family and heirs. You want to maximize the amount you can give tax-free while you are alive, as well as minimize the tax burdens on your estate. If you get to work on this early, it will inform some of your investment and acquisition decisions. Issue 16, be learning-based. First, you learn and then you earn. This old adage continues to be true even for those who have acquired an enormous number of investment properties. Investing is a lifelong learning endeavor. Even the most experienced real estate investors told us how much they were still learning and how much of an advantage their increased awareness will bring them. 
They told us to remind you always to be a student of the game, and that's what I'm telling you now. Never stop learning. To put a twist on an old adage, the more you learn, the more you'll earn. The learning curve is a scientific and research-based concept. It has a real shape. See the chart below? It's like a squiggly worm. And a real impact on everyone. What it says is at the beginning of every venture, when you are a novice, you will put in a lot of time on task, learning or skill building without much apparent increase in your skill, ability to be effective. But don't be discouraged by this. After a certain amount of learning, your skills will begin to show some improvement. Just after that, there comes a very important and exciting time, a period of accelerated growth and both awareness and skill. Suddenly, it all comes together. You get the whole picture. And you see how every piece fits into that picture. Your judgment is sharper. Your confidence is higher. And as a result, you are even more motivated. You're now in the game. The key to getting good at real estate investing is to stay with it long enough to reach this accelerated zone of skill attainment. Many people quit too early, sometimes just before entering the zone. Others never put in the time it takes to get there. They remain novices and therefore make novice mistakes throughout their entire investment career. At the top end of the learning curve is the place where the experts dwell, those uniquely motivated people who enjoy mastering the game. Even at their level of expertise, they continue to learn and fine-tune their knowledge and ability. However, as the curve shows, they do not gain a massive increase in ability for the time they put in. But for them, that little difference makes all the difference, and a 1% improvement in an area can translate into big, meaningful returns. They are at the top of their game, and while it isn't always a competitive game they play, no one plays it better. There is an important reason why I have introduced this concept at this point in our discussion. I want you to understand that learning is a game we play when it comes to investing and financial wealth building. Knowledge is power, particularly in financial matters, and it is worth taking the time and having the patience to reach the zone of skill attainment in any area you want to master. There's a second point I want you to appreciate. Every time you undertake a new area of knowledge, you again will go back to the beginning of the learning curve. You will, in that area, be a novice. This is the real problem with changing your real estate investment strategy again and again. You will move backward before you can move forward confidently. There will be some carryover from your general learning about real estate, but if you move your investment strategy from residential single-family houses to many warehouses, from urban to uh, exurban properties or from existing rental units to raw land, you will have to start over and learn both the basics and the nuances of a new area of real estate. Become the master of one approach, not the jack of all approaches or even many. Once you pick your primary investment strategy, learn it and begin to employ it. Don't switch out of boredom or for the promise some magical, no one's ever thought of this, get rich quick scheme. Follow the proven path. Use the fundamental models and learn the ropes for yourself. Let any aggressiveness or sense of urgency drive you first to learn and then stay tenaciously focused on working your chosen strategy. Master your niche before you ever consider a switch. Issue 17, be accountable. Few people understand the concept or the power of accountability. Most confuse it with discipline, evaluation, and criticism. The truth is that accountability is a very powerful and personally enabling process. The greatest successes and the highest achievements 
always, almost always are due to accountability. For me, big success comes 10% from having a goal, specific or written, 10% from having an action plan, predetermined strategies or activities, and 80% for having accountability. As important as goals and plans are, accountability is even more important. Accountability means having someone else with whom you review what you have done, evaluate the results you have gotten, and commit to the next things you are going to do. This process must involve another person, a mentor, a coach, a consultant, or a peer partner. You can be more or less disciplined by yourself, but you cannot hold yourself accountable over the long haul. There must be another person. That's what makes it work and makes it powerful. Almost every great athlete or artistic performer has a coach. Many have more than one. Tiger Woods is reported to have had five at one time. Who holds you accountable is important. Those people should know you and what you are trying to accomplish, and you must trust and respect them. But they do not need to be better than you at what you are doing. Their role is to keep you on track, to make sure that you are doing what you set out to do, and are looking at the results you are getting. Always remember that feedback is the breakfast of champions. Accountability is about getting feedback and using it to inform and motivate our future actions. It's about not letting ourselves get too far off track or out of balance. Find the best accountability partner you can and allow the accountability process to work for you. Once you experience this life-altering power of accountability, you will never stop using it. Not in the book. I've done this several times. So after I trashed my second business, I had to sit and think about everything I had done wrong. And while I had done exceedingly well on the actual real estate investment side, I had done very poorly at running a business. So I humbled myself and worked, went and worked for two people. I worked for Steve Londo. He's now a house full of cash, but back in the day it was Londo Properties. I put in two years with Steve, and then I put in three years with Joe Delia of the Delia Group and with Renee over there. And I learned, I humbled myself, and I learned. I was accountable to him because whatever's good for Steve is good for me. Whatever's good for Joe and Renee is good for me. So they had expectations of me. I had expectations of them, and it worked pretty well. I also used this for a couple of my challenges. Um, the most recent one was my 50 challenges or my 50 listings in 50 days for bold. Um, I wrote a $5,000 check. I went on social media, told everybody, and then just to amp it up, I started talking shit to everybody in the fucking office. So if I failed, I knew I was never going to hear the end of it, right? And fucking miraculously, thank you, Ron the Don. I got 51 listings in 50 days and I didn't have to cash that check. So those are some other alternatives besides coaches. Um, if you have the right kind of spouse or partner and you're not a pussy about it, and I know a lot of you are, so don't do this if you are. Um, you know, if you are, if you're the kind of person that you can hold your spouse accountable and you know, if you can, if you got the kind of spouse that can be held accountable, right? Generally speaking, it's not a good idea get someone further out, right? But you can accomplish this by coming to a real estate meeting every month, right? That's a form of accountability. Um, you can say, no matter what, I'm going to do uh, one hour of lead gen every day. And if I don't, I have to do some task for someone. I, or, or here's a good one. Um, I got to donate money to an organization I hate. Oof, there you go. You don't want that to happen, right? All right, back to the book. 
It all comes down to this. Our goal with Own a Million was to touch on the complexity of investing without getting lost in it. Surprisingly, all this apparent complexity can remain simple if you keep the right perspective. All the complexity you will encounter in the real estate investment game boils down to trying to accomplish four simple things. Number one, getting in for less, little or no down payment. Number two, maximizing cash flow, increasing rents and reducing debt service and expenses. Number three, avoiding taxes, reducing or delaying them. Four, increasing return on investment and on equity. Don't let names for things or more complicated ways of doing them distract or disorient you. Keep it simple. Keep your focus and avoid getting lost in the labyrinth of complexity. Your path is straighter and far less complicated than you might think. Almost everything we've learned to this point can be rarely distilled into a short, memorable form. See the chart above. This is on page 308, figure 22, right? When you take a step back and put things in their simplest terms, it comes down to this. All right. Receive a million. Reaching for the light. In his award-winning book, The Trees in My Forest, Bernd Heinrich, sorry if I ruined that, described how trees in his part of the Maine woods individually manage their growth and resources to compete for light. Their choices are simple. They can take the nutrients they absorb and focus their growth upward or focus it outward. To reach the light, some trees attempt to be taller than those around them. Think of the tall forest pines that are mostly bare except for at the highest reaches. Those trees are racing upward for the light. Other trees grow wide in hopes of drowning competitors in their shadow, like the oak spreading out in a clearing. Last is the curious case of running ground pines that sprout up whenever the light pokes down through the upper canopy. An opportunist like this can have a root system the size of a football field and is often mistaken for many separate plants. Each tree in its own way manages growth upward or outward or some combination of the two to strive, thrive, and reach for the light. The journey of the millionaire real estate investor is no different. On the path from buy a million to own a million, investors must manage their primary resources of cash flow and equity buildup to reach their net worth goals. Some choose to apply cash flow to paying down debt and therefore accelerate their equity buildup. Others tap into their equity or save their cash flow to reinvest in other properties. If you take the cash flow as it comes, leave their equity where it is and let time do its thing. None is right or wrong. These are all different paths to the same goal of increased net worth. Now it's time to turn our focus from net worth growth to annual unearned income growth. Receive a Million is founded on the idea that you can, if you choose, reach a place in your investment life where you can step out of the day-to-day working work of investing and receive $1 million in annual pre-tax income. It's about amassing the capital assets that can provide you with the kind of unearned income. It's about knowing the ways to convert those capital assets into cash flow. It's about building an organization that can ensure that your money will continue to work for you when you are no longer working for your money. That's one of the big questions we want you to be able to answer. The ultimate destination we want you to strive for. We know that if you can reason a path to that big income goal, you can learn how to step out of your investment business someday and receive more unearned income than many would ever dream of or need. One million in annual unearned income. The challenge of unearned income. One of the things I found to be most 
almost universally true is that most people do not know what it takes to generate meaningful amounts of unearned income. Before you can invest money, you generally have to earn it and pay taxes on it. Only then are you able to take your net income and invest a portion of it for a passive return. If you are working on a job to earn $1 million in annual after-tax net income, you'd have to earn over $1.5 million to compensate for taxes. Think about it. Today, the highest tax rate for ordinary earned income is 35%. That means you'd have to earn $1.5 million to net an even $1 million. I rounded up, rounded off there a little bit. That's one year of amazing earnings that goes away the moment you stop working. Investing for $1 million isn't much easier, and it takes a lot of after-tax income to generate $1 million in interest. The chart below tells the story. Working from left to right, you can trace the amount of income you've had to earn before taxes to have enough money left over to invest after taxes to reach your big income goal. If you could achieve 5% annual interest on your investment, you'd have to earn over $30.7 million to net. After tax, $20 million you'd need to invest to receive a million dollar pre-tax income. At a 10% annual rate of return, you'd still have to earn over $15.3 million to invest $10 million after taxes to receive a million dollars of cash flow. Even at 15% annual rate of return, an investor would have to earn over $10.2 million to invest $6.6 million and reach his or her passive income goal. Honestly, it doesn't have to be this difficult. Receiving $1 million in annual income is very possible with real estate and can be comparatively easy for those who are willing to think, buy, and own like a millionaire real estate investors and put their money to work for them over time. Let's take a close look at what it takes to receive $1 million in annual pre-tax income from investments in real estate. The interesting thing about investing in real estate is you have many options for achieving your big income goal. As one of our millionaire investors put it, there are many roads to Rome. For the purposes of this discussion, let's narrow our focus to single-family residential investment homes and attack the issue from four distinct angles. Number one, how much real estate would an investor need to acquire today to receive $1 million in annual cash flow now? Number two, how much real estate would an investor need to acquire today to receive $1 million in annual cash flow in the future? Number three, how much real estate would an investor need to acquire over time to receive $1 million in annual cash flow in the future? Number four, how much real estate would an investor need to acquire over time to receive $1 million in annual cash flow and equity pullout in the future? And all four models will work with the understanding that an average single-family home costs about $170,000 with a gross monthly rent of $1,360. To account for vacancy and other expenses, we use a conservative figure of about 40% for our calculations. And where appropriate, we use mortgage interest rates of 6.9% for 15-year loans and 7.43% for 30-year loans. Way cheaper now, huh? At least for now. Rent and the value of our properties will appreciate at 5% annually, which is slightly below historical averages. Finally, we'll work from the assumption that properties are acquired at a 20% investor's discount with a 20% down payment. Don't forget that your choices and your abilities can improve the results with all these models. If you choose to reinvest cash flow to acquire more real estate or pay down debt, you may achieve your goals faster. If you consistently achieve higher rent rates, lower your expenses, or reduce your vacancies, you'll be accelerated along the path to your net income goal. 
With that in mind, let's look at the first way to receive a million in real estate. Number one, how much real estate would an investor need to acquire today to receive $1 million in annual cash flow? To receive $1 million in annual pre-tax income now, an investor would need to acquire 102 single-family rentals at once and own them free and clear. Anything less than 100% equity position requires a substantial increase in property ownership as well as a greater investment of cash. For instance, if an investor chooses to close with 50% down payments, he or she will have to acquire more than 240 properties for a total investment of $16.3 million. As illustrated in the chart below, to achieve this goal immediately, an investor needs to invest $13.8 million to gain a 100% equity position in the properties and save $3.5 million by acquire properties at 20% discount. Achieving a million dollars in cash flow today requires a substantial upfront investment. The good news is that most people don't need to receive a million immediately. Most people at least have some time to let the advantages of investing in real estate work in their favor. Number two, how much real estate would an investor need to acquire today to receive $1 million in annual cash flow in the future? Factoring for time works in an investor's favor because it allows the investor to account for appreciation in real estate values and rents, both of which historically tend to appreciate at around 5% a year. Using the same assumptions, but this time including our regular 20% down payment for 15-year or 30-year mortgages, Let's examine how much real estate an investor would have to acquire today to achieve a $1 million in unearned income 10, 20, or 30 years. This time will allow our hypothetical investor to let the market forces work in his or her favor. The chart below depicts six different scenarios in which this could play out. There are 15-year mortgages. There are three for 30-year mortgages. Pick a quadrant that matches your timeline and take a moment to consider the numbers. And this is uh, page 317 is figure four, and it's right in the middle of the page. In this model, the numbers take an astounding turn to the investor's advantage. With a 10-year window, the investor would need to invest $6.9 million with 15-year mortgages or $3.9 million with 30-year mortgages to achieve a $1 million in pre-tax income. With a 20-year window, the investor would have to invest just under $1 million with 15-year mortgages or $1.5 million with 30-year mortgages. Finally, given a 30-year time frame, one would need to invest between $595,000 and $768,000. All of these scenarios produce strong and in some cases remarkable rates of return on investment that would satisfy most millionaire real estate investors. What keeps this scenario in the realm of hypothetical for most individuals is the necessity of buying all those properties in just one year. Let's look at our third model where the investor can purchase properties over time to achieve $1 million in unearned income in the future. Number three, how much real estate would an investor need to acquire over time to receive $1 million in annual cash flow in the future? And this model will factor for both time in the market and the time it takes to acquire the portfolio of, cash, of a cash flow millionaire. What's instructive about this model is that it shows investors the average number and market value of the homes they will have to buy each year to meet their unearned income goal. Furthermore, it shows the amount of money an investor will have to invest on average each year as a key driver in setting one's budgeting and saving goals. Again, the model, see on the chart on the, on the facing page, and that's 318 figure 5. Depict six scenarios that are based on mortgage loans selected at the time frame. 
Take a moment to review each scenario and the numbers they represent. What immediately jumps off the page in this analysis is the growth of net cash flow over time. In the 10-year scenario, there was a marked benefit to choosing the increasing cash flow of the 30-year mortgage. Homes, uh, 17.1% homes purchased each year. Over the equity buildup of 15-year mortgage, 39.9% homes purchased this way. In fact, the investors' acquisitions are more than cut in half. However, this is reversed for the 15-year, uh, once the 15-year mortgage has been paid off and paid off in the 20-year and 30-year scenarios. If you're looking for cash flow and have time to grow it, accelerated debt pay down may get you there faster with fewer overall acquisitions. Number four, how much real estate would an investor need to acquire over time to receive $1 million in annual cash flow and equity pullout in the future? Never pulled out, right? Get it? And the last and most comprehensive model, we're going to accelerate the process by factoring in the fact that equity buildup can be used as a source of income. As you know, there are two ways to achieve income from investment real estate. First, investors can achieve cash flow from their investments. Second, they have the additional option of tapping into and pulling out their equity buildup. Equity buildup, the combination of value appreciation and debt pay down is very real. In fact, until the mortgage debt is completely paid off, there will be a greater average annual returns from equity buildup than from cash flow in almost any scenario. As we discussed in our own a million real estate investors who are in the growth phase of investing always manage their return on equity to keep their money working hard for them. Thus, they rarely look for 100% equity position in their properties, much less their portfolios. Our research and experience show that the best, most prudent investors will manage this to range from a minimum of 20% to a maximum of around 70% before pulling some equity out. In the beginning, equity pullout often is used for reinvestment in more property to accelerate the process. The beautiful thing about equity pullout periodically throughout refinancing is that this equity income is tax-free. The IRS sees this income for what it is, a liability incurred. These investors count on appreciation of their tenants to pay down their debt and build up their equity so they can repeat this process. This equity pullout can be periodic or all at once, with the primary consideration being the investor's desired ratio of equity to debt and the cost of refinancing. However, any time an investor reaches the $20 million equity mark and is achieving at least 5% annual appreciation, that investor is in effect getting $1 million a year in tax-free income if he or she chooses to pull it out. In all the scenarios of this final model, the investor buys fewer properties and invests less to reach his or her net income goal. As the time frame of the investment plan lengthens, the investor has the extra bonus of having to lead generate for fewer and fewer genuinely, genuinely great investment prospects each year. In fact, in the 30-year scenario, the investor must find an average of only one outstanding property every two years. Whether your goals are for today, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, or even 30 years in the future, we hope you're motivated to do your own math. It's all about asking the 1 million unearned income question in a personal way. Will your criteria allow you to buy for less and achieve more? How will the real estate and rental values in your market affect your personal equation? What is your comfort level with your leverage? Do you want to keep a high equity position in your properties for security 
or would you prefer a lower one for greater return rates of return? One of the things we discussed in Own a Million was the concept that millionaire investors think in units. Interestingly, when you apply the powerful leverage of trading up to larger multifamily properties into this equation, one million in unearned annual income becomes far more approachable. As we've learned, by consolidating property management and leasing into fewer properties, investors can lay claim to higher rates, rental rates than the 0.8% we've considered for single-family rentals here while having fewer management issues with which to deal. In fact, one of the investors we interviewed built an amazing investment business by buying and selling real estate for investment income and then reinvesting in larger multifamily commercial properties that now generate $12 million in annual profits. That, by the way, is $1 million a month. $1 million a month. The in- inspirational story of Investor 34. One of my favorite stories is that of a millionaire investor we interviewed in California who built a remarkable real estate investment business that generates $12 million in annual profits. Since he was our 34th interview and out of respect for his wish to remain anonymous, we will call him Investor 34. Investor 34 started his business, his investment business on savings and credit cards. And for the first six months, he and his wife worked from their kitchen table. By that measure, his success should feel repeatable to most people. He didn't have the advantage of beginning his investment career with large sums of money. You ever hear that? I can't do it. I don't have any money. It takes money to make money. Bullshit. The niche he latched onto was buying limited partnership investments in real estate. He and his wife would obtain lists of the limited partners from the general partners, which by law they were required to share, and then mail those investors a marketing piece offering to buy their interest. At the time, they would offer as little as $50 for shares that value around $100, and roughly 5% of the people they mailed to would take them up on their offer. But then a rising tide in the California real estate market swept them up and helped them turn that as much $150 profit on each share they acquired. As this investor said, our goal is not to be the biggest company around. It's to be the most profitable. So we'd rather do a lot of small transactions that are highly profitable than a big transaction that generates the same amount of net income. Their business success was limited by how much time they could devote to the mailings. A big breakthrough came when this investor's wife called a printer and asked, can you print address and stuff these for us? All of a sudden, they went from mailing 1,000 marketing pieces a month to 5,000, then 10,000, 20,000, and 30,000. Our response rates and our profit margins were the same whether we made mailed 1,000 or 100,000. So the profitability of the company went way up. Rather than treat the money as income and consume it, they reinvested directly in real estate, apartment buildings, and storage facilities to build a stable platform of residual income. Today, Investor 34 owns over 4,000 apartment units and more than 1 million square feet of storage rentals. Amazingly, he nets over 12 million annually from 45 million in gross revenues. His little investment business has grown into a big investment business, obviously more than he and his wife could maintain at their kitchen table. Currently, he has over 60 direct employees divided among five investment companies and another 100 independent contractors who manage his apartment buildings. What I love about Investor 34's story isn't that he built his multi-million dollar investment business so cleverly in little increments of 100 to 150 reinvested in real estate. It's that he 
he discovered a powerful way to take him further while working less. People leverage. So not in the book. Uh, Tommy Desmond, give you a little shout out. This man has got to have the one of the highest per dollar hour. Like he doesn't do anything unless it's going to make him a shit ton of money, right? So that's one way to look at it. Back to the book. It really wasn't about the money. I wanted to set up my own schedule, and mostly I wanted to be able to spend more time with my family. Investor thirty four works about twenty hours a week. That's against my religion, but there's nothing wrong with that. He's living his dream, right? He doesn't carry a cell phone or a pager because I want to be connected when I want to be connected. He spends more and more time with his family. In our language, Investor 34 is well down the path of receive a million. In fact, he's at a point on the path where it's possible to receive a million a month. But no matter what amount of unearned income he receives at the end of his journey, be it more or less, I know he's already discovered the amazing freedom that comes when you can step out of your daily investment business without losing your income. It's what we call the seventh level, the path to people leverage. The seventh level, the path to people leverage. If you're like Investor 34 or any of the other millionaire real estate investors we interviewed, you'll find that as your investment business grows, you rely increasingly on others to perform the day-to-day tasks of investing while you manage the process. This is the natural evolution of a growing business. One day you'll discover that you're doing all you can and look for help. Sometime later, you'll realize that even with the help you have, you're hitting a ceiling of achievement because there are more opportunities and you have time to explore. You'll seek more help and continue to grow. And this cycle will repeat as your investment business expands along with your mastery of it. In our observation and experience, there will be seven distinct and separate levels you will pass through on the path of becoming a real estate or a millionaire. Receive a million. Damn it. God damn it. All right. Let's try this again. In our observation experience, there will be seven distinct and separate levels that you will pass through on the path to becoming a receive a million millionaire real estate investor. The fucking names they come up with is in the book. There, is that angry enough for you, fucking Mark? Although the exact organization makeup of your investing operation may vary slightly, the seventh and final level of investment business is sure to include one commonality. One day you'll remove yourself from the routine daily business and allow a pre-selected high-qualified individual or individuals to run your investment business for you. It's the place where you get to enjoy the financial wealth you built without having to manage it actively. There are three basic components to the investment business of a millionaire real estate investor. There will be one part of your business dedicated to acquisitions and dispositions, one committed to administration, and one that handles your operations. In the beginning, you will run all three departments and either do all the work yourself or manage independent contractors from your work network who do these functions for you. But over time, as your investment portfolio grows and you increasingly rely on your work network, you will see the wisdom in hiring an employee to do these jobs for for you and only you. That's where I'm at. If I hire anybody now, they only work for me. Back to the book. Let's take a quick look at the three areas of your investment business. The first area, acquisitions and disposition, is the last one you'll give up. A&D is the work of generating leads, evaluating opportunities, and doing deals. This is the heart of your investment business. Without leads, there are no opportunities. Without opportunities, there are no deals. And without deals, there is no income. It's that simple. You'll want to stay active in acquisitions and dispositions for as long as you can. 
This is where you will earn the most money for your time. And so it makes good financial sense to spend the most time there. Admin is another story. This is the very first area we advise you relinquish. The admin part of your investment business is part that handles your legal and financial work, organizes your contracts and closings, and maintains your database and files. The more clerical nature the work is, the sooner you may find yourself willing to farm it out to your works network and later hire someone to tackle these tasks for you. Interestingly, while some of these tasks fall under the broad title of admin, many are highly specialized. For example, unless you happen to be an accountant or lawyer by profession, you're probably best served not to advise yourself on complex tax or legal issues. You should contract this work out to qualified professionals in your work network. However, you may find that it saves you money to pay for the advice of these professionals and then file your own tax returns with the IRS or record the minutes of an investment business meeting you keep for your legal entities. The last area is operations, ops, and it covers the broad area from leasing and property management to maintenance and construction. Whether you, someone in your network, or someone you hire does these tasks, you probably will have to develop expertise in these areas to become a millionaire real estate investor. Since these tasks are tied directly to your vacancies and expenses, leasing and property management can have a big impact on your bottom line. When we discuss maximizing your net operating income and own a million, we were pointing you toward the moment when you might hire contractors or employees to do this important work on your behalf. Maintenance and construction are similar and that strong knowledge in these areas can both save and make you lots of money. The good news is that your continued work in A&D, particularly the estimation of repair costs for your acquisitions, will keep you abreast of standard costs in these areas. For many investors, a property manager is the first non-admin employee they hire. Arguably, other than a full-time A&D person, no other position will save you as much time and energy. The moment you contract with or hire a property manager is the moment you cease to function as a full-time managing landlord. This means someone else is taking the call for the broken toilet, the wobbly ceiling fan, or the broken furnace. Someone else is collecting rents and calling past dues. Someone else is freeing up, freeing you up from a massive way to pursue A&D, acquisitions and dispositions, and build your business. As you can see in the chart above, the investors we interviewed first made the important decision to stop doing it themselves and hire part or full-time administrative help. Every business has a certain amount of work, filing, record-keeping, organization, and errands, that can be ignored for periods of time, but not forgotten. At some point, those tasks must be done for your business to stay on track, but they can steal valuable lead generation time from your critical acquisitions and dispositions work. That's why admin help almost always comes first. A highly focused investor probably can generate enough admin work to keep more than one person busy while the investor pursues opportunities and deals. If the first level is where you do everything, then the second level and third level are where admin employees help you do more. The fourth level is really about bringing in a property manager. In our research and experience, that's almost always the first person to hire for ops. A few of our investors chose a maintenance employee first, but those instances were were rare and usually were the result of larger multifamily ownership. The fifth and sixth levels represent your growing investment business with ever-increasing needs for admin and ops employees and one significant addition, your first acquisitions and dispositions hire. 
This is a person who gets the game of investing, maybe someone from within your organization or your network who seems to have a knack for finding opportunities or doing deals. You will want to find a way to compensate this person, whether through base salary, bonuses, profit splits for doing this for you full time. The final and most important stage is the seventh seventh level where you hand over the day-to-day operations of your investment business to another person. Up to this point, as your organization grew, you were acting not only as the owner and principal investor, but also as the company's CEO. Now it's time to hire a CEO to replace you. By this time, the people in your organization with the gift of leadership should be revealing themselves to you. It's likely that one person are already is largely responsible for your admin functions and manages other employees in that area for you. Similarly, another person probably is in charge of your ops. If multiple employees have joined you in your ongoing acquisitions and dispositions efforts, it's possible that a leader is emerging in that area as well. Remember, acquisitions and dispositions is the last area you relinquish. At least that he recommends that uh, you relinquish. These talented individuals have demonstrated that they are committed to the goals of your investment business and have risen to leadership positions within it. You still manage them, but they skillfully manage many people and projects on your behalf. These emerging leaders probably will be the best candidates to slide into the role of CEO. The sobering truth about this transition is twofold. For one thing, no one will be able to do everything you do as well as you do, especially in the beginning. After all, you spent years perfecting your investment models and the systems you use to manage your investment business. You know your models so well and are so good at implementing them because they most likely were built to match your natural strengths and compensate for your natural weaknesses. The talented individuals you've hired were brought into in to complement, not replace your skills. You can expect your CEO to stumble and struggle a bit in the beginning. You won't be freed right away, but most likely will have to manage and mentor your CEO until both you're confident that the person can do the job without supervision or safety nets. That's sobering truth number one. Sobering truth number two is that your new CEO probably will be much better at some aspects of the job than you ever were. This is where you'll have to rein in the natural competitiveness that helped you build your investment business in the first place. Because your CEO brings new strengths to the position, he or she may earn the right over time to change or even improve some of your systems. That doesn't sound like a bad thing. It sounds like a fucking great thing. Why would that be a problem? What kind of eagle fucking maniac would have a problem with that? Your new role as business owner will be to monitor that person's progression from duplicating the success you created to being allowed to tinker with it. Remember, you built your investment business on proven models. You should expect your CEO to do the same thing. The interesting thing about building a real estate investment business is that you have two distinct choices. On the one hand, you could build a larger active business as Investor 34 did. On the other hand, you could choose to hire sparingly and count on your extensive work network for leverage. Both methods are valid. The big difference shows up at the seventh level. Investors who build bona fide businesses tend to be better positioned to step out and count on their unearned income. Businesses are about cash flow and rarely have caps on their growth. They can remain active and agile even when the primary investor steps away. Investors who build their investment enterprises primarily through their work networks are aiming toward a pseudo seventh level. To fully achieve the seventh level, you have to hire your replacement. 
This path never leads to total leverage. Even though through outside property management, the investor may be far removed from the day-to-day work, he or she will still need to give the investments considerable attention. These investments won't continue to grow your investment portfolio the way your replacement CEO would. This is really the path of preserving and maintaining wealth. Many of our investors selected this option. With the help of key partners and property managers, they built large real estate portfolios that required less and less of their time. They knew how much they needed and didn't mind that their portfolios were likely were unlikely to grow once they turned their attention elsewhere. They achieved a pseudo seventh level with lots of freedom and great rewards. Over time, you'll be able to remove yourself from the day-to-day work of your investment business and focus on managing your CEO and key leaders. Instead of working in your business each day, you'll be able to work on it as little as a few hours a week. If you ever wondered how entrepreneurs manage to run multiple businesses simultaneously, this explains it. They work on their businesses, managing key leaders rather than working in the business every day. Moving from managing your time to managing others. Reaching the seventh level will involve an entirely new set of skills for a prospective millionaire investor, business and management skills. Instead of creating a pro forma system for a transaction, you'll be reviewing one made by someone who works for you. Instead of inspecting real estate, you'll be inspecting reports made by someone who looked at a property for you. The good news is that from the moment you began developing your work network, you were building the foundational skills necessary to make this transition from investor to business owner. That's what you did with every independent contractor you hired to fix your property, file your taxes, or manage a renovation. You had to tell them what you expected and then inspect their work to make sure it met your expectations. It's about communicating your standards and then inspecting to make sure you got what you expected. The decision to keep for yourself or assign to others the acquisitions and dispositions, admin, and ops functions of your business always lies with where your time and their time are most valuably spent. Not only do you want to stay focused on your most dollar productive activities, you want the talented members of your growing organization to do the same thing. If the bookkeeper who saves you thousands in accounting fees each year could save you tens of thousands as a property manager or make you even more money scouting for opportunities, you may find yourself looking for a replacement bookkeeper. Choosing whether to contract with this person from your work network or to employ this person outright involves the same financial common sense. The main difference lies in the length of time you pay the person. You engage contractors from job to job, but employees are engaged for the long term. This means they, you have to have enough work to justify their salaries and keep them engaged. Your progress through the seven levels is essentially a progression from I do it to we do it to they do it. In the beginning, you did everything and essentially paid yourself. As you developed your work network, you started contracting with others to leverage your time and profits. The moment your investment business began generating reliable income, those people had the option of bringing in full-time employees to grow it. This is the period when you'll be working with people inside and outside your organization. The seventh level is where you take on the role of business owner and run your business through the talented leaders you've hired. These leaders are the custodians of your investment business, an asset that still pays you money. While you still will bring vision and values and standards to your business, you'll cease to run it in an everyday basis. That's the gift of the seventh level business, owning an investment business asset that pays you unearned income while demanding a comparatively small amount of your time. 
Tis better to give than to receive, moving from wealth accumulation to wealth distribution. And not the commie kind, the kind where you actually give it away. In late December 2004, Business Week published its annual list of the top 50 philanthropists for the year. On one end of the spectrum were Microsoft, Microsoft's Bill and Melinda Gates, who donated an astounding $10 billion to charity, a one-year gift equal to 20% of their total net worth. On the other end was Martha Ingram of Ingram Industries, who gave away 30% of her net worth for a total of $106 million in charitable giving. The generosity of those individuals were inspiring and instructive. Clearly, those wealth builders understood that it understood that it is, as they say, better to give than to receive. That money is good for the good it can do. What they also understand is that in order to give a million, you must first receive it. You hear that, fucking commies? You want to go pay for a bunch of shit? Go out and earn it first instead of fucking begging or stealing from everybody else. Back to the book. One of the greatest gifts of wealth building is the ability to share the wealth you've built. Eli Broad of K&B Homes stated that the reason he gave over $1.3 billion to charity in 2004 was, I've always been interested in making a difference, and I think that in just about all of our giving, the money is making a difference. Fortunately, the gift of great giving is available to all. Many top givers credit their fortunes to what we believe is the most attainable an accessible wealth building vehicle around real estate. Also not in the book. You don't have to wait till you're a millionaire to do anything. You just have to make sure that what you, you do is sustainable and doesn't hurt you, right? Cause you've got to be okay before you can help somebody else. That's kind of what he's talking about here. And it's the better you do, the more you can. So if you really want to help a lot of people, you really got to make a lot of money. Back to the book. My personal wealth building journey and careful observation of others has helped me understand that there are clear financial stages to a person's life. Wealth education, wealth accumulation, wealth protection, and wealth distribution. It's not that complicated if you take a moment to consider it. After all, we have to learn about wealth building in order to do it. Once we've accumulated, imagine that. You got to learn about it before you fucking give it away. Amazing. God, this Back to book before you hate my fucking guts. Once we've accumulated wealth, it's only natural to want to protect what we have worked so hard to earn. That last stage is the one that is overlooked most often. The time when, having secured our own future, we look to help others. For some people, wealth distribution happens in the form of a will. For others, it's about sharing their good fortune earlier so they can see the gifts in action. Whether you choose to distribute your wealth at the end of your journey or along the way, I encourage you to internalize one important fact. Financial wealth is never truly owned. The most one can achieve is to be a good steward for a time and then pass it on. Philanthropy is defined as the giving and sharing of time, talent, or treasure intended for the common good. It is our hope that as you progress through the four stages of this book, think a million, buy a million, own a million, and receive a million, you'll be striving to achieve your personal financial potential as well as your philanthropic potential. Building wealth is a wonderful and rewarding journey, but it's even better when the wealth is shared. As you consider the time when you can truly receive a million, I hope you'll choose to receive more than you need and share what you don't, especially when you want to help people. The journey to receive a million ends where you decide to end it you can reach for $1 million or more for less. Your personal goals are your own. We encourage you to use the big models designed for more than you think you'll ever want or need. Never put camps on your f- caps on your financial potential. 
I would say any potential, your potential to buy, own, or receive, and even give all the wealth away you can manage. Part three, staying on top. This is it. We're within the range here. We're so close. We're so close. Putting it all together. Never take your eye off the ball. In July 2004, on a summer night made for baseball, Derek Jeter made one of the greatest catches in baseball history. Playing for the New York Yankees against the rival Boston Red Sox, Jeter saved the day. In the 12th inning of a tie game with two men on and two men out, Red Sox outfielder Trot Nixon blooped a high fly ball down the left field foul line. Even with men closer to the ball than he, Jeter took off like a rocket the instant the ball was hit. As he raced over from his shortstop position to make the play, passing at least one other player in the process, his momentum forced him to make a perilous head-first dive into the stands after making the catch. Jeter eventually emerged with the help of the fans, his face battered and bruised, holding a ball firmly in his glove, winning the inning. Thanks to Jeter's heroic catch, the Yankees win the game one inning later. Although baseball through the years has seen some catches just as good, there has never been a better one. What struck me most about the catch was that Jeter never took his eye off the ball, not once. And that is what it took because there is only one way to make a play like that. Focus. Focus, driven by motivation, supported by the knowledge and skill, causes one to take action without thought about not succeeding. Never underestimate the power of purpose and focus. It's how baseball's uncatchable balls are caught, and it's how incredible wealth is attained in the financial world. Whether it's athletic victories or financial wealth, if you want to win, focus on what really matters and never take your eye after ball. Anyone can do it, and not everyone will. My young son and his friends say they want to become financially wealthy someday, and most adults I know say the same thing. It seems everyone wants financial wealth and independence. I believe they can achieve it, but not everyone will. This is a natural law of financial wealth. It's called Pareto's Law. Earlier, I shared Pareto's principle, or the 80-20 rule, as the concept of the vital few versus the trivial many. The rule was discovered accidentally during a historical study of the distribution of financial wealth. Pareto was studying wealth. In the 80-20 principle, Richard Koch explains that what Pareto uncovered was both astonishing and predictable. 20% of the people will own 80% of the income and wealth in any society, in any economy, at any time. Some will become financially wealthy, but most won't. This predictable imbalance takes concrete form in the haves and the have-nots. However, it is actually the tale of the willful and the wishful because whether you're in the 20% or the 80% is a choice, your choice. You get that? Financial wealth and independence may be predictably imbalanced, but they are neither preordained nor predestined. You and you alone get to decide your financial future. I believe Pareto was right. Not everyone will become financially wealthy. But I also believe that anyone can. The formula is simple. Focus driven by purpose. Basically, you have a choice to focus or not. What you do with this choice will make all the difference in your financial world. Don't spend the majority of your time on minor things. Don't major in the minors. Decide what matters to you. Decide how to get it and then focus on getting it. Give it passion, passionate intention and serious attention. Don't just give it time and effort. Give it focused time and focused effort. A financial track to run on. 
If you want to be a millionaire real estate investor, you need a map that will get you there. You need a proven financial track to run that that accomplishes four things. Number one, establishes your financial base camp. Two, protects your future. Three, funds your future. Four, helps you stay on track. The simple track not only will set the stage for you to invest, but also provide the investment plan you need. Stage one, establish your base camp. The first stage in building a financial track to run on is to establish your financial base camp. The key to this is to incorporate the net worth model into your life. The first step is to create a personal budget and stick to it. This will allow you to make sure you don't spend all your money and will have some to invest. A personal budget will challenge you to live well, but well below your affordable means. Imagine that, well below your affordable means until your financial wealth has been accumulated. By following a budget, you begin to understand why you buy expensive things after you become wealthy and not before. In the end, you'll come to understand that the first step to becoming a millionaire is to live a controlled consumption lifestyle. It's also when people get win the lottery and they get money from their parents and shit like that. When they die, they just blow it all. It just falls through their fingers like water. They're not controlling their consumption. It's like uh, they just burn it all up. Back to the book. The second step in establishing your financial base is to keep an ongoing net worth worksheet, your wealth building scorecard. Allocate an hour each week to looking it over and asking one question. How can I grow my net worth and cash flow? Each time you purchase something, you will begin to connect the dots between what you do with money and the way it affects your financial wealth. Over time, you'll come to understand why millionaires say that financial wealth is not the same as earned income and that saving is not the same as investing. The last step in building your base camp is to avoid debt. Although this is simple to say, it is hard to do. The trick is to make a commitment to avoid financing your personal costs of living. Unfortunately, many people get wrapped up in the borrow and buy lifestyle. Millionaires do the exact opposite, adopting the mantra, save up, then buy, especially for major purchases. Don't let your credit card do your saving for you. As a rule, try and pay by cash or cash equivalent. In other words, treat your credit card like cash and pay off the balance each month. Millionaires don't use debt-carrying plastic credit. They have no interest in paying high interest and neither do you. If you can, buy on the basis of needs and avoid a once purchasing lifestyle. When something breaks, always think repair first, use second, new last. Your goal is to avoid non-asset based debt at all costs. But in the end, if you must incur debt, try to make sure that debt term and asset longevity match up. Stage two, protect your future. The next step to creating your financial track is to protect your future. There are four fundamental ways to do it. Number one, set up an emergency fund. Two, purchase a home. Three, obtain adequate insurance. Four, create an estate plan. The first thing to do is protect your future is to save three to six months of living expenses for an emergency fund. You need a safety net so that no matter what happens, you have options. Expect this reserve amount to go up as your net worth goes up. Next, purchase a home. This is not only this not only is for savings, it also secures the one asset that determines your lifestyle more than any other. As with any other purchase, buy on the basis of needs first and wants second. Buy what you think you could afford, not what a lender will lend you. Buy with your family plans in mind. Don't underbuy, necessitating a move too soon, or overbuy, anticipating more income in the future. 
It's a tight line to walk, but you must walk it. If you do underbuy, you'll probably end up making this your first rental property. Overbuy, and it might put you in the poorhouse. Don't become house rich and income poor. The real key to freedom here lies in putting your payments on the fast path to owning your home free and clear. Some might disagree with this advice, but as a real estate professional who has seen both sides of this argument, I say do it. Two extra payments a year on a 30-year mortgage pays off your home in 20 years. Do the math. Third, protect your future by insuring it in key areas. You will need adequate disability insurance to protect a minimum lifestyle. You'll need adequate life insurance to help support your family and pay estate taxes. You will need the best affordable health insurance for you and your family. You'll need adequate replacement value and liability insurance for your home, car, and personal property. If you get your insurance agent, accountant, and estate planning attorney together, you should be able to figure this all out in about an hour. Finally, create an estate plan. It must include simple but carefully considered entity planning, appropriate trusts and wills, and strategies to minimize or eliminate inheritance taxes and maximize creditor protection. The investment you make early on for these services of an excellent estate planning attorney will in the end make you money. When Sam Walton was a young man just starting out in business and could least afford it, he set up his estate plan. As a result, at the end of his life, one of the greatest personal fortunes ever amassed was transferred to his heirs with little to no taxes paid. Millionaires get this, and so should you. Stage three, fund your future. This is where the fun, or perhaps we should say the fund, begins. It's time to put the five real estate models together and start the process of finding your future by first funding it. Let's step back for a second. Look at the big picture and see all of what we've covered works. Sometimes an aerial view puts things in perspective. We've covered all of the major steps of a millionaire real estate investor's investment path. When you take them all together, they add up to the six-step investment plan you will follow. It's time to take the instructions and make it strategic. Number one, get motivated. Visualize your life. What you would be doing and what your life would be like if you didn't have to work for a living. Can you see it? These are your big goals. Can you verbalize what you will get from living that life? These are your big whys. While holding on to this clear and mental picture, write down the monthly dollar amount you would need to fund it. Go a step further and figure out how much capital you would need to have invested to, to deliver this monthly amount in the form of unearned income. What you will have is your big goals, your big whys, and your future cash flow and net worth targets. The last two are your financial wealth building goals. Make sure you've accounted for family growth, education costs, expected needs, and some unexpected ones. If you have these two numbers, you have the drivers of your investment plan, you're in harmony, your financial targets match your personal goals. These financial numbers are in touch and in sync with your biggest reasons for living big, and that is where the true motivation to build wealth comes from. Number two, acquire knowledge and focus. It's time to become an investor. To achieve this, you have to do what investors do. Understand money and path it. Pick the real estate market you want to invest in and learn it and build your work and leads network and develop them. School is never out for the successful. Be clear about your must focus areas and master them. Remember, you learn to earn before you niche to get rich. Put together a reading list each year and read those books and do the same for instructional and audio books, uh, audio tapes, videos, and DVDs. 
Attend one seminar a year about a topic you need to know better. Hang out with your network members and listen to the experience and advice. Most important, wake up every day and say, I'm an investor. Today could be the day I find an opportunity to make a deal. Number three, generate leads. With money, knowledge, and relationships behind you, it's time to generate investment opportunity leads. First, put your criteria down on paper. If they're not written down, you probably don't have them. Next, memorize this list so it becomes like a song in your head you can't help remembering. Now go prospect and market for leads that meet your criteria. Pick a few methods and give them enough time to see if they will work. Since your criteria, niche, and target geographic market create a unique formula, you'll have to work with your lead generation approach for a while to begin seeing predictable results. Time block your calendar for lead generation time and protect that time. Set the goal of generating a lead a day, put those leads into your database, and then work them. Number four, convert suspects to prospects. Suspects and prospects are completely different. One won't and one will. One wastes your time and one is worth your time. One costs you money, one makes you money. One isn't worth any effort and one is worth all the effort. The trick is to be able to figure out quickly which is which. When you can do that, you're doing some of the most critical work investors do. You'll pick your prospects by inspecting the property, interviewing the seller, and giving your, getting your network involved. Your goal is to be able to say, my prospects are looking up. You'll be able to say this when you know about the property that meets your criteria and is owned by a seller who will meet your terms. Number five, buy real estate investments. When investment opportunity shows up, move quickly to control the property. Simply put, make an offer. Do you know, last week, I made a fucking wholesaler a full price offer with EMD that this motherfucker would not accept and could not get us in. And as far as I can tell, can't even sell the fucking property. But you know what I did? As soon as uh, Jay brought it to my attention, we pounced immediately. The offer went out immediately. I see so many of you tire kickers. Remember the part where he says, write it down? You don't know what you're fucking looking for. So what's the point of looking? If you know what you're looking for, when you see it, you pounce. Uh, you do a lot of nothing until you do a lot of something, right? Not a deal, not a deal, not a deal, not a deal, not a deal. That's a deal. Write the offer. Move quickly. Since your real estate contracts will have an evaluation option period, you haven't committed to buy yet, but you have committed to try to buy. Begin the negotiation process by making an offer whose terms make the property match your criteria. Negotiate with the seller with the win-win goal of meeting his or her selling objectives while meeting your criteria to invest. If you and the seller can agree, you've acquired a deal. Number six, gain insight. Once you acquired an investment property, follow through on your strategy for it. Improve and sell or improve and hold. You'll need to evaluate your deal as you go along and ask your network to do the same thing. Some deals will be better than others. That's why it goes for every investor. Some will be home runs. Some will be bunts. And you want to eliminate or at least limit your strikeouts. Remember that success is a result of good judgment. Good judgment is the result of experience, and experience is the result of bad judgment. You'll make mistakes, but as long as you buy it right, all mistakes are survivable. In the end, your experience and feedback you get from others will give you knowledge and insights that will help you create even better deals in the future. That's what you want. Lots of experience and better and better deals. Stage four, stay the course. 
The final stage of building your financial track is to create and sustain energy so you can stay the course. Don't worry about the economy or the market. Warren Buffett says he doesn't. It's your criteria that matter, not the conditions that might create their availability. Stick to your plan and invest based on your criteria. The chart below lays out the specific approach you should take. You will need to devote about 10 hours a week to this wealth building program. You can do a little each day or you can do a week's worth each week. The choice is yours. Just stay on course. And there's a figure on page 348, figure two. Go check it out. As straightforward as this looks, implementing it can be challenging. Successful investing in wealth building is a process, not an event. It's an endurance race, not a quick sprint. And you will need to create and store energy to run it. Burnout lurks behind every property you must go see and every seller you must interview and negotiate with. You cannot afford to let this happen to you. You must guard against weariness and distractions so you continue investing and enjoying it. It is a long haul. If you don't stay the course, you'll be shortchanging your investment plan yourself. You'll need an energy plan to become and remain a millionaire investor. So one of the things I talk to about my agents, not in the book, um, from the time they wake up till the time they get home, I don't want any more than 12 hours to pass, assuming you're getting after it, right? I push it a little bit. I have slightly better endurance than everybody, and believe it or not, I've actually come down, but I wake up at 4.30, and I try and be home by the office from 6.30, and I don't fuck around with any single part of my day. I am getting after it. I found most people right around the 12 hour mark, right? What do I mean by 12 hours? From the time you wake up, get your work on out, eat your breakfast, get your kids off to school, get to work, get after like, like get after it hard, not come in, like go to the water cooler and start chatting and shit. You know what I'm saying? Like get fucking busy, right? We have three hours of lead gen or two hours of lead gen, one hour of follow-up. We have to do every morning, Monday through Friday. We got to get in. We got to fucking get after it. And if you do that, you're busy and you have appointments, Right. The point I'm making is I don't like this like workaholic culture. I, I know I'm a guy who fucking loves work and I'm known for working my, my ass off. It's about intensity and effectiveness and how much you get done. And there are exceedingly few people that I have seen go, who can continue to perform highly well after 12 hours. And I'm talking about if you get after it. Now, if you're being honest and you look at your schedule I am guessing that 99% of you listening are not fucking getting after it at all. And if you're spending 12 hours of work and not getting after it all, knock that shit off. Go in and be like, I'm going to get 12 hours of work done in eight hours. Fucking get after it. And then you're done. You got, you got time to work out in the morning. You got time. You get home. You still have 12 hours to cook dinner, spend time with your wife, kids, husband, friends, read a book, and go to bed early so you can wake up well-rested the next day. It's not even a marathon. It's an ultra marathon. Back to the book. The Millionaire Real Estate Investor's Energy Plan. The world is made up of energy. The things we think of as solid are just energy. The things we think of as liquid are just energy. The earth is energy. The sky is energy. We are energy. You are energy too. They kind of beat that one to fucking death, didn't they? All these things are energy in different form, but at the deepest level, it's all still energy. Recognize this simple and undeniable fact. You and I are energy. We receive it and transmit it. We find it and lose it. We store it and leak it. We conserve it and spend it. 
We breathe it in, we breathe it out, we hold it in, we let it out. We are more of who we are when we have a lot in it and less than when we can be when we have only a little. Energy comes to us when we are doing the right things and leave us when we aren't. When we focus on what matters in our for our lives, we are connecting to the right kinds of energy and our lives burn bright and surge ahead. If you want to maximize your life opportunities, you have to slow down enough to refuel with the energy that matters because you are matter and you do matter. And to get the most out of your life, you have to connect with your life to energy that does matter. In our research on top sales performers, we came to understand a simple formula they used to bring energy into their personal and professional lives. As we interviewed our millionaire real estate investors, we discovered they had a strong force powering their investing. They approached their real estate investment activities with vitality and endurance. And as we got to know them, we got a true sense of their personal energy. As we probed, we realized they were similar to the top performers who had studied in other areas. They had an unspoken energy plan they practiced and renewed them personally and gave them the energy they need to do the activities that mattered most to them. Remember our definition of wealth. It's abundance. An abundant life is a life focused not on just anything, but on the things that matter most. A wealthy life is a life that is filled with abundance in the areas that matter. Millionaires are individuals who have an abundance of financial wealth, but what good is money if you lose everything else to get it? The true abundant life, millionaires get this and therefore seek to find energy, not just financially, but in the other areas that matter. If you want the best energy possible and the most abundant life possible, try the following simple formula. Each morning, meditate or pray for clarity and guidance. Fill your soul with spiritual energy. Then exercise for cardio and muscular strength and eat properly for nutrition. Fill your body with physical energy. Hug, kiss, and laugh with your loved ones for connectedness and joy. Fill your heart with emotional energy. Plan and calendar your day for focus. Fill your mind with mental energy. Review your personal budget net worth worksheets for financial clarity. Fill your finances and investment energy. Finally, lead generate and see real estate for investment opportunities. Fill your time with wealth building energy. Do all this before noon every day if you can. So why so early in the day? Because it's far easier to control your time at the beginning of the day than at the end when you may be tired or distracted. It won't be possible to do it every single day. But when you do, energy will flow so powerfully into your life that you will float and fly through the day. The goal in life is not to be a disciplined person, but be a person of select, selected disciplines. With the energy plan, you are selecting the disciplines and energies you want and making time to bring them into your life. If you make sure these things get done, you will be pulled through the rest of the day, achieving and accomplishing at levels you never dreamed were possible. Energy will come into your life and will be fueling it. You will have become an abundant person, a person of wealth in the areas that matter most. Money doesn't care. The world doesn't care if you're a millionaire and certainly money doesn't care. You're the one who cares and that is as it should be. You should care because it's your life. The key to having money is wanting it and knowing why you want it. The key to being a millionaire is wanting a lot of money and doing what it takes to get it. The key to being happy with a lot of money is understanding what money can and can't do for you. We all have priorities in life. The people who matter the most and the things we most like to do and have. Money, whether we have it or not, isn't intended to define or redefine our priorities. It's intended to help finance them. You ever heard that money just makes you more of what you already are? It's true. 
Money is just money. It will expose and amplify you, but it won't change you. It's simply a medium of exchange that gives you freedom and allows you to buy what you need. The key to happiness is not more money. Happiness is happiness. Our life purpose is to have the best life possible in the time allotted us. It's not the amount. It's the value, and you can't buy that. Money doesn't buy value as it pertains to the best life possible. Money merely reflects what you value and does what it's told. Money sits there until it's called. So put money in its proper place. When you know why you want money and are realistic about what it will do for you, you're in a great place to go call it. You want it, you know why you want it, and you are ready to go get it. But make no mistake about it. Money has its own rules and disciplines, and it doesn't care who you are. If you break its rules, it'll break you. In other words, when you break money rules, you're broke. Don't be financially illiterate. Learn the rules and enjoy the rewards. It's your life. Imagine that. It's not everybody else's fucking life. It's yours. Have a little responsibility for it. Money doesn't care about it one way or another, but you do. Time to get going. This book is about three interconnected things. Making money by investing in real estate. It's a package deal. We hope you're now thinking big, thinking like an investor, and thinking real estate. Anyone can become a millionaire, and if you take the steps we've outlined, you'll be able to change the title of the book to The Millionaire Real Estate Investor. Anyone can do it, and I did. Godspeed and good fortune. Gary, Dave, and Jay. And we are done. <coughs> I've been holding that coffin forever. We are done. Man, when I start this series like two and a half years ago, you know, I got it done, right? I try and read this book once a year. I read The Millionaire Real Estate Investor once a year. I read The Shift once a year. And I read The One Thing once a year. There's a few other books I try and read once a year, like uh, Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. But we're not talking about that right now. Not my nerdy shit. We're talking about real estate investing, a real estate agent, and The Shift in different markets. It's such a great book. I hope you bought it and did the read-along. If you haven't, Go buy it and go back and listen to the read-along. I also uh, encourage you to buy, not just listen to me angry, read it to you for free on this podcast, but go buy the audio book too on Audible and have it so you can listen to it while you're driving around. This is the book I wish I would have had when I first started. And it's one of two books I threw across the room when I was reading it because I was fucking angry because I made all the mistakes. So remember, the secret to getting ahead is getting started. All right, folks, um, thank you. I'm not going to tell you the next book I'm going to start because I'm narrowing it down. I got the three three I'm looking forward to. So um, I also have like the next six podcasts line up, so it might take me six or seven podcasts before I get back to a new book. I have some interesting podcasts I'm working on. But I want to thank you guys and gals for listening. I appreciate your attention. If you enjoy this podcast, hook a brother up. There's a lot of things you could do that help out. First, you can rate and review on iTunes. It's a little troublesome, but the rate and review, which means give me five stars and then type something nice or give me four stars and type something nice or give me three stars and type something nice. If it's below that, send me an email. Maybe I can work on it before you uh, give me a review. But you know what? If you think I get a shitty review, give me a shitty review. I'm cool with that. I'll let the... I'll let it all fall where it falls. You know, share the podcast with others on social media. You can also hire me or one of my many team members at this point here at Renegade Realty Group to list and sell your house for top dollar 
Or if you're looking to buy a primary house or an investment in Southeast Michigan, we can certainly help you with that. I have uh, seven agents now. You can refer sellers and buyers to us, or you can just send me your wholesale deals. We're trying to sell more and more of those to our Renegade Detroit investors. So I really appreciate your help. If any of that, uh, if you can't do any of that, don't worry about it, man. I know we all start different places. Maybe you're just tuning in for the first time, or maybe you don't have that many resources or anything like that. You can rate and review for free and share for others, but don't worry about the rest of it, right? If you like my podcast, but you hate me personally, that's cool. Don't hire me to sell anything, but you can give me, still give me rate and review. So go to renegadedetroit.com, meetup.com forward slash renegade Detroit investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit investment club. You can hit me up on Twitter at Jeremy Burgess and on Instagram at Jeremy Burgess, or you can send me a text or a call 313-600-2133. Also, I want to thank we do have an official Renegade Detroit investor sponsor, and that's Mortgages by JoeRandall.com. Two L's, Joe Rand- Mortgages by Joe Randall. It's in the show notes. He bought us a lot of uh, nice stuff, so he gets uh, some advertising. He's also someone that I've done quite a few deals with, referred him out to everybody, and is generally loved and well-respected in the real estate investor community, which is how we ended up doing business, and we're actually friends now too, which is cool. I think anyway, I try and be friends with all my clients. So then it's fun working with people, right? All right, folks, as I wrap this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. I was a loser. Are you fucking loser? Clean your life up. I know you can. I know it's an election season too. I don't care who you vote for because I don't care who you vote for. Vote for whatever the fuck you want. What I care about is what you do with your life. I don't want you to listen to anybody who tells you you can't do it, that you're not good enough, that you're too stupid enough, that you, you, you need money. Anybody can do this if you decide to do it. We don't get to choose where we start in life. The world's not fair. We can choose what we do with it. Vote for whoever you want for and get your fucking ass back to work. I'd love to see you here. I know there's many distractions, mistakes, poisonous people, and bad habits that make or prevent you from starting or continuing your goals. Stick with it. Don't give up. Do it every day. All right, guys. Till the next podcast or the next meeting, crush it.